So it's automated donation app where it's based on things that you do and things you care about. So some examples that are popular are, you know, you go out to eat and it adds 10% and moves it to people who need food. There's that, or you take a lift and give to climate change, climate justice. There are other things that could be based on your behavior, right? You run a mile and your friend gives or you get to work on time or other more celebratory things. And then there are a group of things out in the world. So some other examples are every time Trump tweets, people give uh, 10 cents to the ACLU. This week's guest is Nick Fitz, founder and CEO of new charitable giving app, Momentum. Born in Washington, D.C. and raised in a reform household to socially conscious parents, Nick learned values around justice and giving back from an early age. Serendipity brought him together with his founding partners, Ari Kagan and Ivan Dimitrov, to develop the Momentum app when they realised that there was no simple way to bridge the gap between people's willingness to donate and their actual ability to make a contribution. Nick and I discussed the genesis of the app, how it's disrupting the philanthropic giving sector, empowering users to give in a simple, frictionless manner and overcoming the barriers most people face when wanting to give by enabling good intentions to result in giving actions and behaviours. The app enables you to arrange automated, small-dollar donations that are triggered by ordinary moments and events that relate to how you live your life. Nick discusses how the app could develop and we cover the broader challenges facing the 400 billion philanthropic sector in the US, the systemic societal challenges and the need for wholesale tax reform. Nick talks about advocacy, optimism and the evidence-based social good movement, the value that NGOs add in ways that governments can't and the importance of supporting independent organisations that can influence changes in government policy. Of course, we also discuss serendipity, curiosity, his perspective on risk and fear and all the quickfire questions. I hope you enjoy the stimulating discussion of insights, ideas, and social innovation with Nick Fitz. Nick, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thanks for having me. That's great. Well, thank you for being here and making the time to come all the way from... I Well, we are based in Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah. Long trip, so yeah. good to be in New York. Yeah. Before we get started and talking about your journey into the startup world, and particularly startups of purpose... We always like to start asking our guests about their upbringing and about their childhood. There's not a massive amount about you online, but I have read a couple of pieces on you that you were born in Washington, D.C. to what was described as a reform household where you learned values around justice and giving back. Also went on to say that your mother was raised in a working class Jewish community in Connecticut. And that gave you insight into people who didn't have a lot of resources, but had lots of ideas. Could you just unpack that a little bit for us and explain the impact of what I just described there on your childhood and upbringing and the direction you've taken in life? Sure. Um, I can just tell you a bit about my folks. So they were both at the State Department. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom was a research librarian there. My dad was in the Foreign Service and worked on the Fulbright program. And so I grew up in D.C. this way, right, with people who's liberal and values around sort of giving back and and both, you know, supporters of government and also just thinking about how to do good and feeling some luck, right? I think for them, there's a lot of different values, right? I, f- I feel I had a really wonderful childhood and grew up sort of playing and having fun and not feeling judged and feeling really close to my parents sort of personally. And then knowing, feeling a sense of obligation or sort of luck around knowing, hey, you know, I, I was pretty lucky to be born where I was to the people that I was uh, born to. Most of us are in Most this, are. <laughs> find ourselves in this the city. The world. Yeah. Right. yeah. So what about siblings? I have a half brother and a half sister uh-huh. who are on my father's side. I'm close with both of them. My brother works in child protective services out on the West Coast. And my uh, sister actually works in 
nonprofits and philanthropy in Chicago. All right. So you're all sort of in similar ways going in the same direction and focused on purpose That's in your right. own in particular ways. Yeah. Interesting. So talk about your worldview. I mean, Washington, D.C. is quite a sort of a unique community. Yeah. When did you first realize that the world was bigger than Washington, D.C.? Um, I think it was something that was important to my folks when I was a kid, right? Just letting me know, like, hey, you know, you're really lucky or think about, you know, where you could have been born or this is what life looks like in other places or... Mm -hmm. Um, right, I didn't know the numbers that if you make more than thirty grand in the developed world, you're in the top one percent. But I certainly understood the understood that that piece of it. And then DC itself, I mean, I'm biased, but of course, I think it's like you know, super diverse across a whole range of domains. Really thoughtful people working on things. I think generally that they really care about and that matter. So that that certainly had a you know that influenced me for sure. Which of your parents had the greatest influence on you? <laughs> Or, or um, what we find they're really in different ways. Yes, that's yeah, what we really hear a lot. Yeah. Right? My, I think my mom is really focused on people and and really sort of listening to people and engaging with them, and, and that's really where she gets a lot of energy. And one value that's really important, my dad is critical thinking and engaging with this sort of stuff, you know, thinking hard about uh, well, how to do good, right? And and applying that sort of just that that kind of thinking about everything. So uh, it's hard. It's hard to say. You know? So it's rubbed off on you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. What what drove your commitment to, or the sent you in the direction of entrepreneurship? Obviously, there's a, a strong requirement for self belief and conviction mm. in your own vision. I mean, Daniel Ek was once said that his mother gave him the security to do what he wanted to do, and instilled in him a belief that nothing was impossible. You just need to dare to do it, and you've mm. clearly taken that step. Can you reflect back on anything in your upbringing that you think has prepared you for this? It's a good question. I don't know that I'm interested in entrepreneurship for its own sake. Mm. I, I think it's a, just a pretty basic feeling of something like we should work on good things, right? Like it's a, it's a more general question around my values of like you know, we should reduce suffering or improve well-being and then feeling like, well, this, this thing should exist. Like it doesn't matter to me if it's in a, in a nonprofit context or research or mm. at a think tank or, you know, building a product, but, but just this feeling of like, of course, this should exist. And, and so I, I, there's that, and, and certainly there's, as a kid, feeling supported, right? Feeling mm -hmm. like I could try things and not feeling, you know, feeling that I could be embarrassed in front of my parents or, or learn or like that, that sort of a mindset. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about yeah. next, which was around the idea of play and the freedom to explore and mm -hmm. express yourself and the sense of safety you had in your development. Yeah, I, I think I've, I really felt that I could play a lot. I mean, I, I've at least remember a sort of constant sense of play and laughter and just sort of openness to the world along with sort of a sense of humility or, or, or just being open to revision. Mm -hmm. And and then I think just on the ground, like walking through the city, you know, just being open to sort of everyday, you know, beautiful things in the everyday world and, and having my folks really point those things out. Okay. Education. You went to a school called Sidwell. What was uh, Sidwell School like for the young Nick? Well, in some ways, it's a very particular place. It it did feel filled with people who, there is a, a strong sense of purpose there. Mm -hmm. um, is that sort of is baked it, into the mission? It's oh, Quaker, it is right. Okay, um, yeah. And it, and so those values are sort of not giving back. A bit strange from coming from a sort of a Jewish community going to a Quaker school. I grew up in sort of a, a maybe stereotypical like atheist, culturally Jewish, progressive community, and and that's super aligned with Quakers. And and it wasn't you know there's the practices of of at least Sidwell were for me aligned. Mm -hmm. And so there are things there where there's like environmental stewardship is a pillar of, of that or giving back or, or participating in the community. And so 
it was, I think, filled, it's sort of self-selected that way, but filled with, with people who at least wanted their children to go to a place like that. Were there any mentors or key influencers at your school or university that have played a part in your journey? For sure. So in grad school, my PI or my principal investigator who, you know, I, I worked for for four years named Peter Reiner, I'm very close with. I, I really, I came in, you know, sort of with a perspective on what I wanted to do and learn. And I really felt that I, he's really shaped me in a lot of ways. I've, I'm really close with him. I really appreciate his perspective on things. He's had a very similar in a lot of ways journey. And what title did you give him? He's a, well, he's a, he was a professor of neuroethics at, at UBC, oh, okay. but, but uh, he was the principal investigator on grants, right? That when you're on somebody's grant, uh-huh. there's you know, somebody who, of course, is the, is the head right. of that okay. or who's the you know, sort of senior author or principal investigator uh-huh. of the grant. It's when you were, used the word investigation to me. Yeah, no, yeah. that's right. No, not, not, not private investigator. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and from Sidwell, you went to study at Grinwe- Grinnell, Grinnell yeah. which I think is somewhere in the Midwest, is it's it? It's in Iowa, yeah. Iowa, yeah. yeah. What was that like? That must have been a culture shock. It well, it was and it wasn't. Um, it's a small liberal arts school in Iowa, filled with people from around the states, or really all over the world, actually. And it's it, in some ways was similar to Sidwell, actually. Mm-hmm. Small, you know, classes of twelve people. There, you know, TAs like really, mm-hmm. you know, focused on the sort of seminar style of learning. Really open, open-minded, and and also focused on service, focused on you know. How do we learn and, and contribute in a way that helps people, mm-hmm. um, or at least filled with people who think that way? And then what led you to University of British Columbia to do psychology and sociology? I, well, you know, in retrospect, there's this you know, narrative that I think we can all tell that looks like it's coherent. But I moved after Grinnell to D.C. to work at a think tank, and then I you know, saw a flyer at a conference about the sort of work they were doing in moral psychology and sort of applied applied psych and soch and I was really interested in that and so I you know applied for a job and so initially then came up on a grant on a on a their version of the NIH and then you know stayed and did graduate school there. So what was the link there to working under the great Dan Ariely at uh, Yeah. You- yeah, so over those years Peter and I had a variety of different research projects looking at you know, stigma towards mental illness or the sort of ethical and social implications of new technologies or you know, things that he was interested in and, and I was too. And one of those was this gap between you know, how people how people think the world is, uh, right? say how unequal they think it is, how uh, they'd like it to be, mm-hmm. say how uh, unequal they think it you know, should be, and then how it actually is. And so uh, that and then th- this sort of mindset of using psychology and using these tools to do work out in the world for mm-hmm. it to be applied was sort of a key part of Peter's research program and team. And so I knew of Dan's work and, you know, was really excited by this idea. I didn't want to stay in academia and I wanted to do some of this more applied applied work in Dan's center and lab looked like really an amazing place to do that. For people that don't know the lab and anyone that's in this, I suppose, the behavioral science mm. area is will be well aware of it. But anyone isn't. Can you just explain what that lab does? Sure. Um, the area of focus. Yeah, it's called the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Um, great name. Yeah, great name. And it basically... We, we, we all love to have that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it applies, I guess in short, it applies psychology for good. But its thesis is something like, you know, people want to do things that they don't do, and how do you change the environment? Instead of you know, telling them to do it or giving them information, how do you make it easier for them? Um, or how do you change the environment in a way that 
that makes it easier for them mm -hmm. to do it. So, you know, people want to save money for retirement. They want to lose weight. You know, they want to take their medication on time. People want to give more than they do. All of these people want to vote. And so how can, do you design Can you give systems? us any specific examples? Aside from, sure. what, you're, yeah. aside from what you're doing oh, right no, now, for sure. we're going to come on to that. Yeah. I mean, there's an example I think that's a pretty common one that illustrates it well, right? So a lot of people want to be organ donors. Some countries, 90% of the population is, some 10, even though say, the countries are quite similar culturally. Basically, what it is, right, is that you get to the DMV and you check a box here saying, I'd like to be an organ donor. Mm -hmm. People get to the DMV and nobody really reads it, moves through it, and moves on. In other places, you get to the DMV and you check a box saying, I don't want to be an organ donor. And so you are one by default. And the behavior is the same, of course. You don't want to be there. You don't read it. You leave. And so the result is this huge difference, actually, in how many people are signed up. Um, 401ks are mm -hmm. similar, right? It's sort of automated in this way. Like, there are lots of systems, in fact, that are set up to help us, or at least that we try to do that with, you know, automatic tax collection. There's many more that are built against us. Yeah. Right? As, but as we've seen with GDPR, we've started to see a shift in the way that people are having to opt in to having Yeah, that's true. But, that's and, true. Yeah. But I, I mean, more generally, like, you know, th these sort of tools have been used, I think, more often to manipulate or like, mm -hmm. um, basically help companies make money, right? So you well, like, I, yeah. I suppose it's why people like Neo Royale and the guys at the Center for Humane Technology Tristan, yeah. and Tristan Harris yeah. are starting to change the narrative of, to, you know, technology that's built for us, not Right. to control us. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good example. One that I think is super interesting. I, I, one of the things I did at the lab was run a research program on the attention economy and how phones affect mm -hmm. this kind of thing, right? So infinite scroll or autoplay or, the, you know, it's designed uh, to get you to spend time on the screen so they can sell you ads, right? So this phrase of if it's free, you're the product. Behavioral science is used well in that world to get you to do things mm -hmm. uh, that are optimizing maybe for not your well-being, you know, or what you want to do. Maybe you want to connect with your friends, but... Did you yeah. see, it's really, I think it's really interesting that NRIL, Elaine, partner in the podcast, we saw NRIL at a startup event in 2016, just after he'd written his book, Hooked, which is all about habit-forming technologies. And now he's just released his book called yes. Indistractable, yes. which is now sort of using the same techniques to show us how we can control our own attention and traction, right. I think he's calling it. Yeah, that's right. I think there's a difference in power between the companies and the individuals, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, the, the sort of like focusing, like, the onus on the individual to say, cool, now here's ways we can avoid it. It's fine. But, you know, Facebook has like hundreds of PhDs whose job is to, is to get build it against you. Yeah. Right? Like there's a, when there's a McDonald's on every corner, for me, it's a little problematic to ask people to exercise their own willpower to not, mm. to not eat. Well, we could get into a whole rabbit hole around that, but let's just segue into the idea that you had for Momentum or what started out as I believe an app called Sparrow. Can you explain <laughs> the the genesis of this? Sure. I think it was, you know, a couple of strains that came together for the three of us. So there's myself, Ari Kagan and Ivan Dimitrov. We were all friends. We were all working at the lab on different projects, although Ari and I were working together pretty closely. And so I think the things that it brought together are for all of us personally, we've been involved in this sort of evidence based social good movement, thinking about essentially how do you spend your time and your money to do the most good, right? We have these limited resources. What should we do with them? And, you know, a sense of like, you know, after a certain amount, something like 70,000, happiness doesn't go up, this, this sense of luck and sort of an opportunity or obligation to give back. And then just the things we were interested in, right? So it's applying behavioral science mm -hmm. for this purpose. And so, yeah, tied into all of that. And then we, it was, it was serendipitous in different ways. So Ari and I ran a research program on charitable giving and how to get people to give. It was on our minds. 
Ivan had built at the same time a system that sort of like if this then that happens, this sort of automated system, which is obviously key. But nothing to do with charitable giving. At first, he was just a side project for him, uh-huh. and he, you know, he was just you know working on it and thinking about it, and it just happened to be at the same time. And yeah, and I think just also our own experience of thinking like it's hard to change behavior, right? So the idea isn't. Um, to get people to do anything different. It's just like, well, if you're doing what you're doing, how can you make a decision once or have a certain value, like I want to help, you know, do it and then have it run automatically, right? A 401k is is actually a good example here where you're like, I'd like to save money. You set it up once and now it just runs. There was was that sense. And then, you know, we're having a beer and thinking, well, um, you know, I know that people don't have clean drinking water and I know it's dystopian in this way and we're well aware of all the... um, well, all of this, all of the different kinds of suffering, let's say, and yet I still order the beer. Mm-hmm. I still get the coffee. But if the beer was six bucks instead of four, or the coffee was double, or you know this sort of thing, it actually wouldn't make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of it was like, well, if we're doing these things anyway, if you're in a position where you can go out to eat, then you can also probably add you know ten percent for people who don't have food. So it started off that way, uh, and then it just sort of evolved from there into different actions. You know. Running when you give the Trump tweet thing. So, could you explain to people who maybe haven't downloaded but should download the Momentum sure. app what some of these everyday behaviors that then trigger a giving component are? Yeah. So it's it's right this automated donation app where it's based on things that you do and things you care about. Mm-hmm. So some examples that are popular are, you know, you go out to eat and it adds ten percent and moves it to people who need food. Or, you don't you have know. to do this every time you go out to eat. No, you it's just, everything's you automated. You set it and forget yeah, it. Yeah, you set yeah. it and forget it, right? You yeah. can get notifications and a weekly email, and you can we, we track your impact, right? So you can engage with it if you'd like. But And you could set a, a, a limit at the end. Yeah, you can set a limit, say, right. Yeah, for people um, who are eating out every night, you could do something. You can set a limit, that's for yeah. sure. I mean, if you're eating out every night, you can also probably give. Mm-hmm. If you're in, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. that's a case where yeah, you maybe don't true. want to set a limit. Mm-hmm. Um, but for sure, you can set a limit. And so there's that, or, right, you take a lift and, you know, give to climate change or the groups working on climate justice and then there are a whole set of other actions so that's sort of you know either offsetting or at least thinking about how to give based on your spending there are other things that could be based on your behavior right you run a mile and your friend gives or you get to work on time or other more celebratory things and then there are a group of things out in the world so some other examples are every time trump tweets people give uh, 10 cents to the aclu that could be a lot it could that's, be a lot. So that's where you can let it. That's definitely one. Yeah, of when it's out of your control, <laughs> right? So eating is in your control, and it, you know maybe you think you should give, but uh, that one is certainly out of your control. Mm-hmm. So those th- things I th- are. I think you need to get a spokesman like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie <laughs> Sanders to promote the the tweeting one. Yeah, people yeah. want to. You know, people have asked for sure when he tweets to give to Elizabeth Warren yeah. um, or to Bernie <laughs> or something like that. So that's something. So there's that. But so there's that category of sort of people feel frustrated or powerless mm-hmm. or, you know, like they want to make a difference in the world in this way. And it's a way to do it. So that one maybe is tongue in cheek, but there's you know, people want to give when there's a mass shooting or people want to give when there's a natural disaster or, you know, give back in that way. And then the last category of things are things that are maybe that you are, we want to celebrate or that are key to your identity. So people give when This American Life comes out or when mm-hmm. Steph Curry hits a three-pointer. Or as um, in my case, when Cristiano Ronaldo scores that's a right. goal. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So things you follow or things you care about or you give, you know, based on a charity's impact. So it, we work with a group that does, say, overdose reversals. And every time that they reverse an overdose, people give five bucks and then they reverse more overdoses and then people give more money. And it's this cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's you know different different ways that it gets used. And is it fair to say that hundred percent of everything that people give goes to the charities yeah. that you select? Yeah. So you can give anywhere, um, and, or you can give to sort of these cause area collections that we built. Um, so we could talk more about that later. But just mm-hmm. to your point here, hundred percent of the money that you give goes onto the charity. 
And it is actually, we cover all the fees too. So we cover the donor advised fund fee and we cover the credit card fee. You can choose if you want to leave a tip on top is how we do it. So and that's you how say, you cover the, your cost. That's so right. People leave a tip. That's yeah. right. So you can leave 7% or you can leave five or you can leave zero. Mm-hmm. And then we will cover with, you know, we of course are covering the, the transaction fees. So, so I assume most people are leaving a tip. People do. Yeah. yeah, people do. And certainly the people who use it, you know, it's this feeling of just trust and, you know, whether you feel that the thing is, is that you're, you know, you want to support it and it's creating value, then people leave us a tip. The more people give, the more they leave. How do you think this is disrupting the, let's call it the philanthropy and giving sector, which has clearly been going through a, a period of disruption yeah. through technology for the last few years? Um, it's a good question. In some ways, I'm surprised. So it feels that it's a bit behind other similar sectors, right? So in like, it's often referred to as fintech, you have things like Wealthfront and Acorns yeah. and Venmo and you know all of these things actually that help you figure out you know where you should yeah, where you should invest fric- and, friction out of all right, these actions. Right. And they you know we're reducing these behavioral barriers, right? You're not sure where to do it or how much to do it, or they automate it and it makes a lot of sense. We haven't really seen something like that in, in giving, right? Of course, there's like, you know, GoFundMe. And as you said, there's a, you know, ways that power individual donation sites. But I mean, there are examples of that. There are things like CoinUp that already exist. But that's right. it's, it's not really mass adoption the, to the degree that platforms like Venmo are. No, no, not at all. And there's you know, part of it is just that you know, there's a lot of money given every year by individuals, and in particular by people that make less than 100K, households that make less yeah. than 100K. So it's, it's the a, majority of it. It is, right? When you actually it break is. down, it's the high net worth individuals, the people that are, the 0.0.1% <laughs> are the ones that are giving probably least as That's a percentage right. of their... That's their right. And, and even in the gross amount, right, there's 300 billion given a year by individuals, you know, not counting corporations and mm-hmm. foundations, half come from households that make less than 100K, right? Yeah, so it is... It's crazy. It is a lot of small dollar donors. And that's in cash donors. and in... That's, so that's the thing, right? 90% of it is cash and check. Um, so that's the that's the piece where we're like, huh, that's maybe why we haven't seen this is that it it, mm-hmm. it remains that way, right? It's it's checks or it's, you know, it's, it's, it's this way still. Mm. So it, in a sense, what you're allowing people to do is bring an element of fun and joy and frictionless to the way that they've been giving in the yeah. past. Yeah, we're trying to make it easier. So very much focused yeah. on, a, on a millennial Gen Z generation. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So when you're going in to pitch for VC money to build this, what was the initial reaction like? Because it must be an unusual proposition for a lot of VCs to hear this. Yeah. Based on a tip as um, your business model. Yeah, there are other groups that do this, right? Even does this. GoFundMe uses a tip. It's yeah. it's, it's not unheard of. You know, I, I think that world, right, we were, we needed to raise money and we had to think about what's the most sort of efficient and sustainable way to do this. There's certainly a lot of groups who just, you know, didn't want to talk to us because they just don't, you know, want to play around with social good. Um, or for them, they don't think it, it makes money. And that was fine for us. In fact, like that polarization is really helpful. Like we don't mm-hmm. actually want to work with them either. And there are a group of people who want to support it. Right. So it's a range of, of people who, you know, somebody funded us out of his donor advised fund, actually. So it's all already committed and has to go to support nonprofits. So a donor advised fund for people that don't know is money that is raised by a fund to then invest in some form of impact investing. Yeah, and, and essentially it's this, it's you give your money, to, like you know somebody puts money into a donor advised fund and then it's tax deductible at that point. So it counts ah. as having gone to charity and you can't get it back anymore. Mm-hmm. There's actually, you know I think, some really big problems with the model overall, but what it does allow for is, is essentially people moving their money into this and then having it go out to different charities. 
And so a name of that is to identify the most impactful charities. Yeah, and people use it in different ways. Of course, it's a it's a complicated instrument, but I guess my overall point is just we have people who are mission aligned, right? We weren't we're not trying to sell people who don't believe in it in terms of when we were trying to raise money and uh, I think we found a group of people who who mm. actually care. You just referenced there that the amount that's actually given 300 billion but if you actually look at the percentage of GDP that's given, over the last 40 years, it's been pretty much static at 2% yeah. that is given. But recently, since the Great Recession, even millennials and everyone else is actually beginning to give less. Mm. And that's a, that's a real threat and a real risk to the philanthropic sector. Do you see yourself as an antidote to that? It's hard to change that. I, I do. But you're going to be working hard on that. That's right. Yeah. And we started it, right? So one of the things we'd learned in that, research program when we're looking at kind of psychological barriers to giving is that people want to give much more than they do actually they want to give about two and a half times more than they do so plausibly and realistically right so that was and, a big that's universal yeah pretty much across the board so that was something that really got us excited when we first started this is we thought tell Here's Jeff this. To his commitment <laughs> yeah. so that gap i think is something we were excited by right that people want to be doing more and you know, people want to vote, people want to do these things, and so how do you help them do that? And then there's some interesting work out of Ideas42, just to your point on the 2%, that people give about 2%, they think their neighbor should give 6%. So how do you sort of close the gap between you know, basically people's intentions and their actions and their values and, and behaviors? On the 2% millennial thing, it's a hard question, and I'm not an economist, and, mm-hmm. I, and I don't, you know, obviously I know something about the, the charitable tax laws, but... It's certainly so 70% of Americans give, more people give than vote, and 85% of millennials give, but they don't give, they don't have as much money, right? So they don't give as much, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where it will go. I met someone about a year ago who has created a startup for the boomer generation and the great generation. The amount of money that's left in wills is going to be astonishing. Hmm. And I think they're building a startup which allows people to do something with that money but maybe you need to think about wills as a as an action yeah so it's was it free will free will that's yeah, it yeah that's right. yeah he's a great um, guy yeah they're, yeah they're they're really doing something interesting so there is you know coming up the largest wealth transfer uh-huh. uh, in history so it's something to think about i think you could do so wills are on the you know bequest side leaving mm-hmm. money and, yeah. and the psychology is interesting like you know you can't take it with you and so do we really think that we should leave it? how much you know, in a lot of ways, it comes down to do you, you know, what do you think about who deserves what and what we mm-hmm. owe other people, right? Should it be passed down to your heirs, that sort of thing? I think we tend to think that we owe a lot to other people or mm-hmm. to society. But on the other side, I think we're also interested in that people are now receiving this lump sum of money that they, you can argue about whether or not they deserve it, but mm-hmm. that suddenly this money comes in mm-hmm. that at least psychologically feels this way. And so I think both sides of it are interesting. But I, I think what free will is doing is super interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah, fascinating time. So I yeah. think that sort of the economics of the millennial generation are going to change <laughs> probably right. over the next 20 years quite dramatically. Yeah. Um, so that's good. I think that's going to be interesting to see. We might... It's all very well saying, yeah, the millennials and uh, focus much more on an experienced economy. That's easy to say when you haven't got a lot of money, but as soon as you start having the money, <laughs> yeah, we'll the see. shift in focus might change somewhat, but yeah. let's wait and see. I'm just going to re- reference something. Something a, a recent report in the UK said that digital fundraising has seen great creativity and innovation over the last 20 years, but some of the biggest opportunities have not yet translated into significant new income. Fundraising has changed significantly but the donation response hasn't matched. Again, I'm just mentioning that as it feels like we've been waiting for something like momentum to come along to trigger a change in in digital fundraising. Do you see anyone else out there alongside you that 
is doing something similar. Hmm. Yeah, I hope it will. I mean, I, we'll see. There's a lot of different initiatives, I think, that are super interesting. And one thing I really appreciate about the sort of group of people, for the most part, that are working on it is that everybody feels like, well, you know, we're all thinking about how you get people to give their money away. Like, you don't need... Hmm all of your money. And so I think there's some sense of collectivism there, at least, where, you know, somebody, we want somebody to do something. There's a range of different groups doing different things. I mean, there's Lift, Roundup, and Donate, right, which is sort of a feature mm -hmm. of something. There are Roundup and Donate apps that are sort of a single action, right, Roundup everything and give. There's, there's groups that track impact individually, right, groups, or at least that do evaluations. You know, there's people doing different parts, I, I think, of what we're interested in. I haven't seen sort of the Trump tweet thing or that, that thing uh -huh. out in the world yet, but I haven't seen anything yet that sort of we're thinking about it, something like, or at least that brings it together in the way we do, and, and we'll see. When are you going to bring brands into your app to allow them to create actions that they might be able to then match what you give? It's or a good am, question. Or am I giving away your, um, no, no, your tech mean, roadmap? No, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's lots of good ideas. It's a good question. So, you know, we do let, we don't need to work with brands to have people give based on their spending. Mm -hmm. We can do that. You know, we use a company called Plaid that tracks transactions. And um, you know, if you've used any fintech app before, you've actually used Plaid. They're built into pretty much every every app in the ecosystem. So like Venmo, Mint. Venmo, Mint, Wealthfront, whatever. Like when you make that connection to your bank account, they're the ones who do uh, yeah. it. And so in the same way where if you want to give when you run a mile, we need to know that. Or if you want to give when you get to the park, that's a permission. This is a similar way. If you want to give things based on the world, we don't need your permission. We know when you know Trump tweets or a podcast comes out. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting as you start to build in things like Apple's health kit, right. and you can start to tie giving to things like sleep and to exercise behavior. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think so. I think we have some things now that people are really excited about, and it's, well, it's for us just really interesting to see what, you know, what works. There's so many different things. You know, we're saying we're tying giving to what you do and what you care about, and it's a wide range of things, and mm -hmm. so it's only getting sort of more, more interesting or more comprehensive. Take a broader view. I'm going to sort of look at some of the the critics of the philanthropic sector are not critics, but maybe people that see the issues that we're facing in the world at the moment. You, on one hand, you've got people like Steven Pinker, who's written books like Better Angels of Nature, mm -hmm. that argue that we've never lived in a better time when there's less, there's less poverty, less disease, there's less violence. Yet at the same time, we're witnessing the greatest disparity in income distribution that we've probably seen in generations. Right. And if you... Listen to someone like the great piece that went viral on YouTube last year, Rutger mm. Bergman from The Correspondent, the Dutch online uh, news publication. He said the real issue that we're facing is that we have to confront is the fact that people aren't paying taxes, yeah. corporations and very wealthy individuals. And why should it fall on the people of average income of less than 30,000 to be paying all this money to solve some of the greatest issues and problems in the world? I mean, I know that you probably haven't got an answer. You're, you're, you're giving a solution which is brilliant in its own right, but Bergman has a point. Oh, for sure. So just quickly for Bergman, we need to tax rich people um, yeah. more. Yeah. We used to tax people at 90%. We don't now. Um, many other countries tax people at higher rates. They don't flee the country. Mm -hmm. And again, it comes down to you know your view on, on where people's wealth really comes from. I certainly don't think that it comes from some sort of... Mm -hmm. you know, hard work and, and it's a different discussion, but we need to tax, we need to tax the rich. And the first part about Pinker, uh, I think both things can be true. So it's true, you know, we have less violence than we yeah. have ever have and still, you know, moms die of malaria for no reason, right? Like 
I don't, I, I think, you know, that's great that things are better. And, and it's really important, actually, when you ask people, are things getting better or worse? A lot of people think they're getting worse. And actually, mm-hmm. that we've made amazing, you know, progress in reducing child mortality and, and, and global poverty and you know, a, a lot of questions. But we also face some problems that seem to be getting worse, right? Things, things like climate change or, mm-hmm. or sort of political polarization or these, these questions, criminal justice. And I, and I don't, I don't think that just saying, well, right, violence, you know, that we're less violent mm-hmm. is, is going to help us. And we deal with problems that are also much more complicated and more collective. And I think we do, we, of course, we need to tax people. Mm-hmm. I, I think both of those things, I think people should give more money away and they should be taxed more. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see advocacy as being part of your future? Of, of momentum? No, yourself as well as, sure, a, as, yeah. a, as a startup yeah. founder. I mean, we've seen many startup right. founders have gone on to reach billions of users, start sure. to make their voice heard. Yeah. So for me personally, I split a lot of my giving between things like give directly. So just you know, giving giving unconditional cash transfers to people in extreme poverty mm-hmm. and then sort of larger systemic and policy change. So I, I tend to focus on the latter. Maybe that's from because I'm from D.C. It's a question of you know what interventions you think work. But for us, I'm certainly interested in, you know, for momentum, more people give than vote. Right. So it's this question of like there's a literature on, you know, building a pro-social identity or how do you get people to do good and, and there's sort of bringing them up the ladder where you know once you know the idea is something like once people start giving then they're more engaged right now they're paying attention more for us maybe they receive notifications or an email and people care more and then you know you can say well how about you know you go out and vote and do this or we connect them up with a group that is you know thinking about volunteering or you know basically how can we get people more engaged generally and so you build it's this identity i think of of caring about the world and and being engaged this way and it sort of strengthens over time It'd be really interesting if you could find a way to flip that, get more people to vote. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. I mean, that's the ulti- that, I think I suppose that's ultimately the behaviour change that we want to trigger. If we could turn sure. voting into a, a statement of good and purpose as well. And yeah. maybe, maybe that's a, a route to get some brands come in and get more people to vote. And as a result of that, the brands give. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, there's giving is... It, it can be low friction, I think, which is exciting mm-hmm. about it, right? You can say, hey, one way we start is that you know, people, like I said, people want to do more. And so we can say, hey, you know, you want to support the environment more. Here's a way you can do it where you take 30 seconds and you sign up, mm-hmm. uh, right? You get on the website and you just, uh, you're good to go. Now you're doing that automatically. But I think also there's ways where we can say, great, like, it's harder to default somebody into voting. Um, of course, it'd be nice if we didn't, we could vote, you know, not on Tuesdays, right? You, there's yeah. these all these questions of how do you, again, make the environment better and maybe not doing it on a workday would be one maybe or at least having a holiday for it you know you could have a system where people are um, you know, taken to the polls or like you know india has a polling place that's you know close to everybody and, and we don't of course there's you know big efforts to dis- disenfranchise people so mm-hmm. there is this question of just you know what actions are easier to do and so you know how do you move people up this ladder starting from something that's mm-hmm. you know relatively frictionless to starting to something that's like you know people people reading or you know becoming more aware of things and being engaged in a different way is a, is a, is a really interesting question, I think. Just finally on this, Anand Giridardis, who wrote the book Winners Take All, has a fairly scathing perspective on the philanthropic sector and particularly people with the attitude of doing good by doing well and that there needs to be sort of a new solution. One, do you think you're part of that that new solution? And are you optimistic that we'll create the change that's needed to address these bigger societal issues that we're facing? Yeah, I am optimistic, and I think we are. I think Anand's work is super interesting and valuable, mm-hmm. and I think a place where we all agree, and 
I, I really think there are a group of movements that are spinning out of the same way of thinking, right? I think this sort of evidence-based social good movement, there's a, you know, a group of people doing advocacy work. I think there's a lot of people that are reacting to this. Mm-hmm. And so certainly one thing that's really important to acknowledge is that people have used philanthropy as a way to sort of like value signal or whitewash what they're doing, right? So there's a problem when you're, you know, you start a foundation, you're doing something maybe that isn't isn't so effective or, you know, does this. And in fact, what you've built your career on is lobbying the government to lower taxes, right? So that, that sort of thing is really problematic, I think. And we just sort of blanketly accept people who are giving money away as good. Yeah. The other side of it is that, you know, we certainly, like I said, we certainly need increased taxes. I think there are some things that are really unique for philanthropy that are exciting that the government can't do, right? So one of them is just this idea of being experimenting and testing things and, and being able to do things relatively quickly. So there's, say, an example, and there's a, a nonprofit that worked on sending text messages to increase vaccination rates in yeah. India. There's some study, some work that came out of behavioral science that looked like it worked. They scaled it up, and then you see something like the Indian government taking that evidence and immediately scaling it to the population. Yeah. And so I think there's some great examples of that. The other side So it's like an is, incubator for good ideas. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a guy, Rob Reich at Stanford, who's written a book mm, and, yeah. um, about this exact thing, and this is one of his main arguments. Yeah. The other piece for me is that increasing taxes is super important. One thing to acknowledge is that the government is captured in lots of ways, right? Mm. That the government isn't a charity, and it's, and it's goal is not necessarily how to do the most good or the well-being of, of the planet, right? So, if, you know, for example, a lot of the groups, um, say, that we have in these uh, cause area collections or that are recommended by some of these evaluators, like Open Philanthropy or, or others, say, work on criminal justice reform that are working on how to abolish prisons, right, or how to help people with bail. And the government currently spends, you know, something like $300 billion a year in, you know, in putting humans into cages, right, in maintaining mm-hmm. a carceral system based on this, right? And there's maybe lots of reasons why, and, and certainly the lobbying of corporations hasn't helped, um, or is really one of the main reasons. But the point is just like this does exist in the government. You mm-hmm. are, when you ta- when your money is taxed, right, it's going to the military. Yeah. It's going to, to, put, to put people in prison. Another example I think that is an interesting one is that if you look at you know, a cause like animal welfare, your tax dollars are being used to subsidize factory farms, right? So there's a question of how you make, given where we are, how do we make some of the changes that we want to make when the government does things like this? And one of those, I think, is supporting orgs who are independent, right? Mm-hmm. Or orgs who are really working to make some of these changes, right? The government might not work on women's reproductive rights. Or the government certainly isn't working on, isn't focused on foreign aid as a, you know, it has a certain constituency mm-hmm. and is often, yeah, captured by corporations. Okay. We might have to do a follow-up at some stage because <laughs> there's so many other questions I'd love sure. to dive into. But serendipity. You talked briefly about serendipity before, but what role did serendipity play in forming momentum? Um, it's a good question. I think when you, we were all at a place where we were just thinking about things, certainly this is stuff we thought about in our free time, so now it feels sort of magical to have this be, have this be what we work on. And then, you know, yeah, I think the three of us, Ari and Ivan and I came to the center in the fall of 2016, all from very different backgrounds and, and life experiences, but all um, connected by our values. And then, you know, what we were working on and, and how this sort of came out felt very, very serendipitous and sort of organic in this way. And so it's, it's felt sort of like we've been pulled to do this in a, in a, in a certain way. How does curiosity manifest itself in your work? Well, you know, the thing that we're making is super flexible and wide open, right? So yeah. maintaining curiosity, just being excited about things, being open to revision is really important, right? We're constantly, we've been working on it for years. It's, it's something that is really important to us, you know, that we, as I said, would work on anyway. And so it's, it's yeah, it's really shot through with, with you know, what we do and how we do it. 
I think it's fair to say most people are to a certain degree risk averse. Mm. But when you're in a startup, you're in a startup that hasn't got a, a business model based, based on people other than them volunteering to give <laughs> you donations. How do you manage fear, your perspective on failure and embrace risk? Yeah, I think people are risk averse often maybe more than they should be. Uh, so it's a question of, um, you know, what you care about, right? I think for us, we're like, hey, you know, we have 50 years to do things. Uh, right? Again, if you say we can't take it with you, how do you how do you work on something valuable? I'm, I'm not sure what the risk would be mm-hmm. um, exactly, right? So I, I think it feels, it mostly just feels exciting to work on. I don't know if the risk is that, you know, we should all be making more money. We, we all, you know, really don't make a lot of money, but we work on something that we love. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel much risk just yeah. generally. And, and, it, and it's, a, it's an app people should love using. I think it's fun. <laughs> it's great. Thanks. It just made me think, actually, I should mention that there's a, I think, is it Common Sense Media? Yeah. The people that promote the apps for parents um, for, and for people that is, are worthy of your attention. I think this should definitely uh, be listed in Common Sense Media's list. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good Maybe idea. Maybe need to have a chat with them. <laughs> Quick four questions. What principles do you stand by? I think a really basic one is, you know, reduce as much suffering as you can or improve well-being, however you want to think about that basic question of just you know, doing good and what that means. You know, for me, there's a particular way I think that I think about it. It's about, you know, how do you work on problems that, you know, affect a lot of people that are tractable or that you could actually fix and that are neglected, right? That are, you know, constrained by funding or not by having people working mm-hmm. on them, but... Sounds it's like pretty Sid- simple overall. Like you know, how do you how do you just help people? Sounds like Sidwell did a good job. <laughs> yeah, Sidwell. Yeah, Sidwell. I don't. Yeah, yeah I, I'm sure. I think it was. It's hard to know. You know why you where it came from. Yeah, where it came from. It's certainly not not me, right? There's a lot of different a lot of different factors here. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? I don't know. We, we've had to make maybe some hard choices about what we focus on, but I haven't. I haven't felt that we've bumped up again. Everything feels pretty aligned, yeah. honestly. I haven't felt up, you know. Maybe there's still to come. Yeah, maybe there's um, still to come. Where, right. do you, where do you go to discover new ideas? I walk around the city. Uh, I sit on the porch. Uh, I play basketball. Just I think, yeah, I'm just moving around. Okay. <laughs> Who have you met that's most surprised you? Ah, I'm surprised all the time by people. Who have I met most surprised me? Must be quite a different one for as a behavior sci- behavioral scientist who looks at human behavior. You probably sort of can anticipate things. So surprise, maybe it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah, and no. I mean, you know, there's all this work on knowing your own biases don't improve yeah. your own behavior, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm aware of the stuff, but I, I don't know that I'm, I'm still surprised. I don't. I mean, I think I have a pretty wide range of what I think is acceptable for people or, or what might be normal. So I, I don't necessarily feel myself surprised, but. I don't know. I mean, there's certain people I've interacted with that are just, I've felt surprised by in different ways. Dan, you know, Dan Ariely is, yeah. is, can be surprising in a really exciting way. But I, yeah, I haven't, I, that's a good question. I don't know. Okay. I mean, you're in a, a tech startup, a <laughs> fintech startup. How do you keep up with technology? Yeah, I'm, I'm anti, well, you know, as we talked about, I, I used to do a bunch of work on the attention economy. And mm-hmm. so I'm pretty, you know, I use things like Freedom. I use Do Not Disturb. I've set up. You know, What's Freedom? Freedom is an app that helps you to block and 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 manage how you use technology. I I don't bring. You know, I guess I have certain like heuristics or certain ways that I uh, use tech in my life. It's mm-hmm. a it's a 
maybe it's not a double-edged sword, but you know, I, I use it, I think, in ways that help me get off of it or at least that connect me to people in a way that I feel really connect me to people, right? So I Skype with my parents, mm-hmm. right? Or I use it to call people or ways that I feel, you know, that really support uh, a sense of social connectedness. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't get onto social media and scroll through it passively. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I, I use it sort of sparingly and for for a purpose. Of course, it's like it's built to distract me. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, I yeah, do a lot of things. I watch YouTube and just go down, you know, holes. But you're well uh, placed to know what's happening. I know what's happening. Internet. I don't know if I'm, you know, I'm I'm also susceptible to it. I mean, I think part of my interest in it is that it it also I, I feel mm-hmm. affected by. It. I, I notice that it's a, if that part feels frustrating to me that it's it's designed this way. So. But we, you know, I mean, we, we do run a, a technology company, right? We, we use things like Trello and Slack and, and Google Drive and, you know, things like Gusto help us do things. I mean, it is amazing now where you can just, you know, you can have an idea like, you know, we want to build this system, help people give their money away in different ways, and you can do it with a small team. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's amazing. That is. We have a question, the impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's just about to graduate or study that's got a dream goal, grand ambition, might be to build a groundbreaking app that's been told, I forget it's been done, it's impossible? (laughs) I guess just try it. Like why, you know, what are you going to do otherwise? Right, maybe back to this question of risk of just like, we only have so much time. And so, yeah, you know, what what would you do otherwise, I guess, is 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 a question to ask them. You're in a space we'd call problem solving through philanthropy and changing human behavior but what's one big problem worth solving in a lot of ways how to reduce suffering at scale mm-hmm. no matter i mean maybe that's you know supporting groups like humane league who run campaigns to reduce factory farming maybe it's supporting you know structural change around criminal justice you know, climate mobilization maybe it's around giving bed nets to people or or sort of de- deworming people but there's still a lot yeah. of problems there to solve there's, oh, there's, so, there's many problems to solve time to download momentum <laughs> if and you do could, a bunch of other things uh, yeah if you could return to one night one day uh, place in history where when and with who that's a good one i i don't have an answer to that one it could i go back and be safe like could i go back and yeah. Just like you know, go during the Second World War and see what's going on there, and yeah, have cloak. That's great. Like then, then I'm, then I'm good. So I mean, that's sort of interesting to me, right? To go back that way and be like, what is you know, to be in the room and to Mm. really hear the sort of conversation around, like, this is the plan Mm -hmm. uh, to to like you know, get rid of this group of people. There's something strangely interesting, of course, Mm -hmm. to me about how this, you know, how this grew from people thinking this to like a government supported sort of campaign you know maybe the other side is more interesting to look at the beginning of social movements mm-hmm. right and, and mm-hmm. i think we're fascinated with this there's this work on there's this work out of a group of sort of political scientists at harvard around mobilizing you know something like three percent of the population and then you can see real real change and mm-hmm. yeah that little right you don't need everyone to do everything you, you know three well three percent is a lot of people yeah right, to get three percent of a population of a country but the idea is just right i think i think going back to certain social movements um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I also look, like to go back like hundreds of thousands of years, or a couple hundred thousand years ago, and just see what it's like to live in like you know these groups of one fifty that are nomadic. Mm. Uh, okay, what book or book should we offer listeners that submit best comments in the comment section? That's a good. There's so many good ones. One that's been on my mind recently is Peter Singer, who's also a, a momentum advisor, has, has released his tenth, the tenth anniversary edition of the Life You Can Save. Okay, that sounds, Peter sounds Singer good. helped start the sort of modern animal rights movement and has. You know, done a lot of work in global poverty and health and has written about how to think about these questions or at least his perspective on them. Sounds the good. The non-book is great, Winners Take All, right? There's, yeah, there's, there's some really important ones, yeah. 
who should we interview next? <laughs> that fits, you know, sort of into this. No, could be anyone. Um, anyone you think would be an interesting person for us. You know, yeah, I'd love for you to interview like somebody like somebody who's who's has a lot of resources or a lot of power in a certain way, right? Like Jack Dorsey, the Twitter CEO, mm-hmm. or, or take um, or take anyone who's uh, maybe in a position to we'd make lo- a lot of we'd change. Love, we'd love to do that. Yeah, of course. We, of course. We yeah, normally, hard, hard what we get. have to do is we have to go within your network. So it's called the Impossible Network. <laughs> oh, because yeah. It's okay. about where serendipity takes okay. us. So within your network, who would you like us to interview? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think I, I would say somebody from one of the organizations, you know, we're trying to support a bunch of organizations doing high impact work. I'll tell you and what. And there's a lot of them, right? Why don't, so why don't you, somebody why don't you from, sleep on that and come yeah, back to okay, us and great. recommend someone? <laughs> that we'll sounds do that. good. That sounds good. And just to wrap up, I'd just like to acknowledge you and our guests and thank you for your time and to acknowledge you for what I'd say is huge amount of courage in taking on this step that you've taken from a, which must be in a fascinating role that you were in anyway your vision for spotting such an amazing opportunity the passion that you, is clearly drives you to do it and I would just like to wish you all the best and to say we'll continue to celebrate your hopefully continued curiosity <laughs> in solving these big problems and being part of the force for good in the world thanks a lot so thank you Appreciate very much Nick and um, thank you to Ari and Ivan as well for being part of the Momentum team and everyone should certainly download the Give Momentum app right. and follow you on social at yeah. Give Momentum yeah, at Give Momentum yeah and maybe that's the person those are the people that I think you should interview next to Ari and Ivan like I think right. you know, we'll get Ari and Ivan in a uh, room and we'll set that up yeah you know, no one does it yeah, I could. I could say we could talk the whole time about how how grateful I am for them for them and and for just you know the opportunity to work with them. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Okay. Okay, folks. That's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative and seek out serendipity. See you next time.